In many ways, it's been a great, great day, hasn't it? We've had opportunities to assemble, to do that with the precious blessing of God as our desire. And tonight, we again come together, and we're going to study for the next few moments a lesson having to be drawn from Acts chapter 9. Let me encourage you, turn in your Bible to that chapter, and over the next few moments this evening, we will perhaps go almost verse by verse, reflecting on some of the things we find in that marvelous chapter but also seeking to make application of some of those principles to our lives as well. It's probably fair to say that, as you'll notice on this next slide, Acts chapter 9 is a pivotal New Testament chapter. Now, I realize there's a sense, I guess, in which you could almost say that about any New Testament chapter since God authored it, but there's something rather remarkable about this one in particular because it's in this chapter that we have the amazing... The phenomenal, the truly astounding record of the conversion of a man named Saul. And of course, later he'd author roughly half the New Testament. May you and I never lose sight of the fact that this one whom the God of heaven selected and the one whom he, in fact, brought into the matter of appreciative in regard to the Christian, to, to the Christian movement, he was the one later that would write about half the New Testament. It is with that in mind, let's note this. Paul was the name by which we later would know him. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. We read that in Galatians 2, verses 8 and 9. Now on that occasion, inasmuch as Peter, of course, was a selected apostle to the Jews, it was this man who would be the particular author and the one who would reach in such a dramatic way the Gentile world. Tonight, why don't we study about his conversion? What is it that so convicted him that he would become in many ways the greatest record of any Christian we have any knowledge of? Surely, as we think about his conversion, it may in fact jar us to think about our own conversion and what we're doing in the kingdom. Maybe it is with that in mind. Let's turn the slide and reflect for the first segment of the lesson on the character of this man. As I mentioned earlier, Acts chapter 9 is primarily where we shall count for a little while. But in chapter 7 and 8, we at least have the first mention in all the New Testament of this man. What do we learn about Saul based on those passages? This is what we immediately learn. Would you notice with me in Acts 7 verse 58? On that occasion, if I may fill in some of the details, there was a gentleman, a man named Stephen who with great power and with great directness preached a remarkable sermon. In fact, he overviewed much of Old Testament history in one chapter, and he used that to directly state the need to obey Christ. The Jews who were there did not like that message. In fact, they so despised it that they stopped up their ears, picked up rocks, and stoned the man who preached. Now, inasmuch as Stephen, of course, passed away, note verse 58, Acts chapter 7, "...and cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul." This man known as Saul, you see, not only gave his approval for the killing of Stephen, he actually was such that the witnesses laid their clothes at his feet... And he was thus a direct witness, apparently, of the very killing of Stephen. You may notice in chapter 8, 
one more thing is quickly made known of about this man. The first sentence of chapter 8 reads like this, And Saul was consenting unto his death. In other words, not only could it be appreciated in any other way, Saul was not an innocent bystander. He literally gave the permission, the jurisdiction. He consented to the very death of, of, of Stephen. Notice, though, what else quickly is asserted. Verses 1, 2, and 3 of that same chapter 8. And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church." entering into every house, and hailing men and women committed them to prison. This man named Saul, you see, he entered people's houses. He would come to their domicile, their place of residence, and it says he would hail them and have them committed to prison. He would have them arrested. He would forcibly remove them under the banner of finding out that they were Christians, and he would have them imprisoned. You'll notice then on this slide, Saul was a very aggressive, a very vehement, a very overwhelming persecutor of the early church. In fact, I would ask you to note a definition for a word that appears here. It says, he made havoc of the church. Again, Acts 8 verse 3. That phrase, to wreak havoc, it literally means to be relentless to be devastating. It means to make available a ruinous persecution. Now you and I know today that there are still those who persecute the church, but in many ways it's done passively. That is to say, they may stand by, and they may hurl insults, and they may speak unkindly, but they don't show up with a sheriff and have you thrown into prison. But Paul did. He showed up with authorities from the high priest and others, and he would in fact simply find out, are you a Christian or not? And if you said that you were a Christian, he would have you imprisoned. Make no mistake about it. The relentless persecution that was due to Saul was very strong, and he troubled the early church greatly. As you continue on that slide with me, You'll notice in Acts 26, 11, from his own mouth, he made this statement. It's a chilling statement. Paul later made this confession. Acts 26, 11 says, I punished them. Who's the them, Christians? I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even into strange cities. Paul thus made the observation, this is what I did. I would go to the synagogues, I would find out where the church was assembling and meeting, and I compel them to blaspheme. You and I today sometimes recognize even still we may find ourselves in uncomfortable situations. Maybe someone at work, someone in the community, maybe they are, don't take very kindly to Christianity and perhaps they with directness say, are you a Christian? Do you meet with those folks that assemble down there at the Church of Christ? I want you to know I really don't think a whole lot of that group, and here's why. 
and they begin to tell you this tale and maybe you begin to feel a bit squeamish and you feel a bit hurt because they're so strong and aggressive in their language. But just imagine as you transport yourself 2,000 years ago. Here was a man who was a brilliant scholar. Paul could stand toe-to-toe with anybody and he could thus convict and convince them. And he had letters. He had means whereby he had authorities and soldiers having spears with them. And he very directly looks you in the eye and says, I want to know, are you a Christian? You just say the word. And your heart would start pounding in your chest and sweat would show up on your brow. And it'd sure be tempting to say, um, well, I, I gave that up. I used to be. And suddenly you breathe a sigh of relief as he turns and asks somebody else the next question. Paul says, I compel those Christians to blaspheme. Don't you know that hurt him later after he obeyed the gospel? That he now made the very confession he once persecuted them for making? No wonder he later would say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, I was the chiefest of sinners because I persecuted the church of God. This record we have in Acts chapter 9 of that man leads us to the next point on that slide. Let's go on over to chapter 9 now. In the first few verses of Acts chapter 9, this record is given to you and me. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose of the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. Let's take that text that we've just noted together and develop the whole lesson tonight around it. As we do that, you'll notice that the opening couple of verses of chapter 9 bring us to this observation. We've already noted from chapter 7 and 8, Saul had no love loss for the church or for Christians in general. But now he seemingly takes his animosity to a whole new level. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter... Saul would speak publicly against the church. He ridiculed it. He blasphemed it. He did everything in his power, breathing out these relentless, animosity-filled tirades against the church of our Lord. But you'll notice, he now solicited help from the authorities, verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, he went to the high priest. Now you'll notice, Saul was not the high priest. But he, in fact, took the initiative to go to the high priest. What for? Verse 2. 
and desired of him letters to Damascus. Saul went to the high priest and requested of him permission, official letters from the high priest permitting him to go to Damascus and there to imprison men or women that were Christians. There are some, of course, who often have thought that ladies, females if you please, maybe they wouldn't be in a position, but that made no difference to Paul. It didn't matter if it was a male or a female. If you're a Christian, Saul wanted to persecute you. He wanted to imprison you. He wanted, in fact, to snuff out as much as possible this movement. He didn't like Christianity. He hated it. Did you notice one thing about this? The high priest, of course, was situated in Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. That's where the high priest officiated over the Sanhedrin court. But Saul wasn't interested in letters that permitted him to persecute those Christians in Jerusalem. He had his sights set on Damascus. You could go to the airport today in Jerusalem and board an airplane. And you could fly directly to Damascus and it's 136 miles. Now you and I know Saul had no airplane. In fact, as you travel from Jerusalem to Damascus, it is a very strong descent. I would estimate it to be at least 200 miles by walk and by road. Saul was so convicted in light of his desire to snuff out Christianity that he was willing to obtain letters and walk the dusty Palestinian roads for 200 miles to go to Damascus. Now, doesn't that paint a picture of the conviction of that man? He was a Jew, you see. He was convinced this Old Testament law was right and that it was still going to be powerfully and needfully right. And this newfangled way of Christianity was just a myth. Jesus was an imposter. He wasn't who He said He was. And Paul considered himself in position to try to bring to an end this business of Christianity. So he obtained these letters. I'm also told, at least the research that I did, seemingly suggested it likely would take at least six days to walk from Jerusalem to Damascus. And yet Paul was willing to do it. To walk that far, that long. Are you gaining an impression of the conviction and dedication in his mind to how strongly he felt that Christianity was not true and it was not real? and that it was everything in His power that He was needful to do to try to end it. Let's go further on that slide. At the very bottom, I would point out that this man Saul and his conviction, he himself later would highlight in Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It was there that he said, I advanced above all who were my equals, being more exceedingly zealous of the tradition of my fathers. Was Saul zealous? Absolutely. Zealous for Judaism. Zealous for the way of the old law of Moses at this point in his life. This character that you and I see manifested in Saul brings us to the next slide. And maybe this is the time to pause for our first lesson of the evening. For I might quickly say, doesn't this challenge you and me as Christians in a very dramatic way? If this man was willing to go to this extreme to persecute Christianity, 
doesn't it give us a hint of the greatness with which he would defend it once he became a Christian? It would take a lot of conviction to convert a man who felt this strongly, and he's about to be convicted. You're, you and I are going to see it in verses 4 through 6 in a minute. But it sure begs the question of you and me today. If Jesus died on that cross for me and for you, shouldn't I be willing to be a strong defender of Him? Shouldn't I be willing to be overwhelmed with eagerness and excitement and conviction relative to Him? I would point out to you passages that you can see there near the middle of that slide. Isn't it rather amazing to think about the certainty with which Saul's parents had taught him? Remember, he had grown up, Acts 22.3, as a Jew, and he was convinced that was right. Parents, you instill in your little ones, those little boys and girls, the conviction of Christianity... As they grow up, they too will appreciate that if you train up a child in the way he, is, he should go, then when he is old, he'll not depart from it. Proverbs 22, 6. Fathers, Ephesians 6, 4, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The moments that you spend teaching them, instructing them, guiding and leading them, it will not be wasted time. And it will not go unnoticed within the halls of heaven and as those youngsters mature and grow, notice they will be strongly dedicated to the same faith they have been bequeathed and to that faith that they have now made their own. Isn't it an amazing thing to consider Paul's conviction and how that, that begs of you and I to ask about our own. How convicted are you and me if circumstances in our land were to change? so that there does come open persecution like Paul put against those of his day, would you and I still be faithful? It's an always encouragement when we hear about those of our brethren who are in far distant countries who do not have the protection of the government that we've got. And yet they meet sometimes at night and sometimes in the wee hours of the morning and they meet under cover of cloud because if they're discovered or if they're caught, it could certainly be a very challenging time of imprisonment. And yet they meet because they look for a land better than this one and they look for a world whose promise and hope is far better than this one. Let's journey onward in our study. Because you'll notice in verse number 2, there's something very interesting. The description that therein is found. It says, "...and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem." Isn't it an interesting concept? Here Paul was going to travel 200 miles, I'm estimating, to arrive at this far distant place of Damascus. And yet when he got there, he felt sure he'd be able to find the Christians. For he had letters that permitted him to imprison them, be they men or women. Have you ever wondered, how was he going to find them? I mean, when Christians walk down the street, we don't wear a hat that says, I'm a Christian. We don't wear clothes with some great glittering placard on us that says, look at me, I'm a Christian. And yet Paul felt sure he would be able to find them. He felt sure he'd be able to locate them. 
you and I, of course, recognize easily the means by which that happens. May I offer two possibilities? Number one, Christians are assembling people. It has always been that way. It will always be that way. Christians are individuals who assemble. On the first day of every week, we're going to come together. Even if the government tells us we can't, we're going to stand on Acts 5.29 and say we ought to obey God rather than men. And if the government were to ever tell us you cannot pray just like they tried to do to Daniel, it's not going to make any difference to us. And so they were assembling people. All he had to do was find in Damascus the synagogues because after all, he knew well where they were. And long before the days when the church had a church building of its own, they would meet in the synagogues, these places. And remember, the synagogues were used on Saturdays under the old Jewish law, but Christians met on Sunday. And so the synagogue wasn't used much that day, and the Christians would meet there, and all Paul had to do was just go there and wait. Another thing, though, about Christians is that their lifestyle often portrays them as peculiar. There are things they just won't do. A Christian won't drink alcoholic beverages. A Christian won't speak in ugly, profane ways. A Christian won't behave himself in ways that cheat and disadvantage other people. He won't defraud anybody. And so all Paul would have to do was go and start a few conversations around town. He'd soon find out those that were a little bit different, those that were peculiar. And so it is. May I ask you to notice the interesting description of verse 2, that if he found any of this way. Don't you just love that expression? This way. There's something different about those people. They don't live like everybody else in terms of what drives them and motivates them. And every Sunday without fail, as long as they're able, they're going to assemble. Here Saul said, they're of this way. May I say, you and I today are still of this way. Didn't Jesus on one occasion in John 14, 6 say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And yet here are people who also were of that way. As you and I close that slide, may I suggest time and again the New Testament describes Christians as individuals who truly are of the way because they are peculiar people, zealous of good works, Titus 2.14. One chapter later in Titus 3.14 we read, Let ours also learn to maintain good works, that they be not unfruitful. You and I are zealous of good works. Our definition of good works isn't the same as the world. We don't march to the beat of that drum, you see. We march to the beat of the Lord's drum. We have our life tuned to His frequency. And so it is that you'll notice on that slide the last few passages to which I would ask you to notice. In James 4, verse 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? We don't strive to make friends of the world because our great friendship is, of course, with the one who died for us. The way. Aren't you thankful to be a part of the way? Verse number 3 now brings us to this observation. And as he journeyed, that's again Paul, he came near Damascus, 
Now remember, this journey may well have taken him six days to get from Jerusalem by foot all the way to Damascus. And yet it says, And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Later in Acts 22 and Acts 26, he would describe this light. It was exceedingly bright. In fact, not unlike, even greater so than the brightness attached to the sun. Again, it was exceedingly bright. And our discussion brings us to notice Acts 26, 13, when again he described it in that rather dramatic way. And doesn't it point out that it took place about noon? Now that seems to suggest that he was walking hard to get there. And as he arrived again about the noonday hour, the following observation takes place. This bright light shines about him. Now it's true that suddenly he heard a voice because verse number 4 says it like this, He fell to the earth and heard a voice. Now remember, Saul wasn't traveling alone. There were companions, there were others making the journey with him. And one might ask, what did they see and what did they hear? Verse number 7 tells us, And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless. They heard a voice, but they saw no man. They heard that voice and they too saw that light. But as far as the conversation that Saul heard from that voice, they didn't see the man. Notice with me verse number 4. It says, And he fell to the earth, again that's Saul, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? At this point, our comments proceed, proceed further. Isn't it interesting that the language that Saul heard was Hebrew? Jesus, the Son of God, from heaven spoke to him in the Hebrew language. Now notice, Saul was a rather skilled person. He knew Aramaic, he knew Greek, he knew Hebrew, and may even have known some additional languages. And yet the God of heaven, namely the Christ, addressed him specifically and did so in Hebrew. Did you note the first thing that Jesus said to him? Verse number 4, Saul, Saul, Jesus knew him by name. I almost thought about putting that as the next lesson in here. He knows you by name too, you know, and He knows me. He knows everything about your life and mine. Nothing is concealed or hidden from Him. He knows what you've been doing. And He knows where your heart really is. Is it with Him or not? It's easy to see that Saul was impressed by this. Here was a great bright light, a voice appearing from some great powerful essence above, and it called him by name. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Early in the lesson tonight, we gave appreciation to the fact that Saul, again, had been a strong opponent to the church and had, in fact, persecuted it mightily. Might you note this point? When Jesus addressed him, he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? But what was Saul doing? He was persecuting the church. And when you persecute the church, you persecute Jesus. Isn't that the conclusion? Saul had been persecuting the church, and yet Jesus says, you've been persecuting me. 
Anything that you and I do to harm the church, we are harming Jesus. For the church is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all, Ephesians 1.23. No wonder we must always honor and respect the church and never do anything to harm her, to bring disgrace upon her, to bring ill repute or disrespect to her. Isn't that amazing to hear Jesus say this to Saul? But as you and I journey onward, aren't you a bit fascinated to note this? You can imagine the fear that came upon Saul in verse 5 says, He said, this again is Saul, Who art thou, Lord? He referred to the one speaking to him. Though the light was bright, and it may well have been so bright that Saul's sight was unable to permit him to really see anything. For we know in a moment he's going to be struck blind anyway. And yet, it says, verse 5, And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is a shocking thing to try to put yourself in Saul's position. For years he had thought that that Jesus, and no doubt he had heard much about this man that was crucified and this church that had been established, but he never believed any of it. It was just a fanciful ruse on the part of an imposter. It wasn't real. The law of Moses, Saul felt, was still in force, and nothing could set that aside. And yet the very one whom he thought was a myth, and the very one whom he thought was an imposter, was now addressing him by name. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus whom you persecute. And the last point in verse 5, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. As you and I journey forward in that, after the Lord identified Himself, He then made note of the fact, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Have you ever wondered what that phrase means? What did Jesus mean by telling him that? At that point, let's close our lesson tonight with two more observations and the lesson will be yours. First, isn't it a fair thing to at least reflect on the amazing selection that the God of heaven had made for Saul? Of all the people on earth... And remember, the earth's population at that time was extensive. And of all that number, God handpicked this man Saul to be such a critical component in the early days of the church. He would be the one who would go so far throughout the Roman Empire, establishing churches, preaching the truth to both Jew and Gentile. He'd be the one who would have such a vital role to play. And God selected him. And so it is that these comments lead me to point out to you verse 15 of Acts chapter 9. The Son of God Himself, speaking of Saul, said, He is a chosen vessel. Have you ever wondered, does Jesus have some work for you to do? Is there some person that only you will be able to reach with the gospel? Nobody else has the influence. Nobody else has the means whereby they'll respect enough to listen. Could it be that all of us in one way or another for the context of Christianity, at least in a way, are chosen vessels for Jesus? Meaning that we have a work we can do. 
be it the sharing of a cup of cold water, Matthew 10, 42, or be it the great power of preaching the Word in dramatic and public ways, whatever that be, aren't you fascinated that God selected Saul? His qualities were just right. His characteristics were appropriate, and God in His infinite wisdom and providence knew what a great, powerful force He would be in the early days of the church. God selected him. You'll notice then on that slide, it brings us to the last point in the lesson. What was it that Jesus meant? Kicking against the pricks. I think that's an interesting phrase, and yet Jesus spoke it. You may notice that in some translations of the Bible, that phrase does not occur in verse number 5. For instance, if you're reading in the American Standard Translation, it will end after the phrase, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. In other words, that last phrase will not even be present. The same is true of many other translations as well. But on the other hand, there are other ancient translations in which it does appear. I thought tonight at least it'd be worthwhile to reflect briefly upon it and use it for one more lesson in our study tonight. First of all, we need to appreciate what is a prick. Now, I think we all know in a sense what that is. For instance, when a thorn pricks you, you know something sharp penetrates or pierces and at least offers a sharp pain for at least a moment. The actual Greek word that is present there is the word goad, G-O-A-D. And you and I, especially living in this part of the world, know very well what that is. You use a sharp pointed stick to guide animals where you want them to go. If you're trying to load cattle into perhaps a trailer to take them to market, they don't always walk in gently and easily, but you may use a stick to urge them, sometimes in a very forceful way, so that they'll go where you want them to go. And you may do that with a cow or with a sheep or with a goat. And so the idea of a goad is very, is very familiar in the Old Testament. frequently mentions an ox goad. For after all, Shamgar used one in Judges chapter 3, verse 31 to slay a large number of Philistines. But back to the text before us. Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You and I know that when a cow resists that goad, it really isn't going to work out well. It only makes it more painful because you'll push harder. Isn't that right? Because you want that cow to go where she needs to go. And if she resists, you're only going to push the harder so it's more painful. It seems to me that this paints a dramatic picture about Saul. He had been such a strong opponent to Christianity but this verse seems to suggest his conscience was bothering him. Saul, you know that that man Jesus died, and you know that these people who are Christians, who you've persecuted, they haven't believed a hallucination. The faith they have is real. And in their heart, they know Jesus lived and died. And they know the church is worth anything that they've got to experience to be a part of it it would appear that that was resting on Saul's mind. Time and again, he had seen these people perhaps even go to their death because they believed in Jesus. And that kind of conviction does not go unnoticed. It had bothered Saul, and it would appear maybe one more thing is worthy of note. 
May I ask, who was it that was the teacher of Saul? Acts 22.3 gives us his name. His name, Ananias, or rather Gamaliel. Saul sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He learned from him. He learned the matter of the old law of Moses from him. But yet there's one thing about this Ananias, or rather this Gamaliel. Look over to Acts chapter 5 for just a moment. In the closing verses of Acts chapter 5, might I call your attention to verse 34. Then stood up there one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. I'll not read the rest of the chapter, but the idea is this. When Peter and John were being arraigned before the authorities, one of the most respected Jews stood up, that man's name, Gamaliel, and said, Gentlemen, I want you to think with care about what you're about to do these guys. If what they're saying is really not true, it will vanish and it'll become nothing anyway. But if they're from God, we cannot oppose it, for you'd better not fight against God. That seemed to suggest Gamaliel, at least in his mind, had begun to wonder about the reality and the truth of what this business of Christianity was. And if that was Paul's respected teacher, maybe Paul's mind was beginning to change as well. But he couldn't yet let go of that old law of Moses, and his conscience was bothering him. He was headed to Damascus to be sure, but Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. And so it is on that slide. Sometimes today, maybe you or I have in our conscience the fact that we know something needs to be done differently, and but we keep on doing the same old thing. And it bothers our conscience. And we know that the Lord would expect better of us. In that case, isn't it true? It's hard to kick against the pricks. Your conscience bothers you and you know you need to change. May you and I find the courage and the nerve and the discipline to change what needs to be changed. I'm going to leave you waiting for a week because we'll continue the story next Sunday night because we're only getting to the thick of it. This conversation between Jesus and Saul is going to, of course, reach a heightened pitch in just a moment. May we offer the invitation at this moment. We've learned four things tonight, and on this conclusion slide, I've tried to summarize all of them. We first saw the conviction of a man who felt sure that Christianity was false, and he even had letters permitting him to go to Damascus 200 miles away. He not only obtained those letters, but our conviction, our appreciation of him leads us to notice that he was headed to find those of the way, and that's you and me as well. When he found them, he was going to imprison them and take them back to Jerusalem to be tried before the Jewish authorities. Lesson number three, as you can see on the slide, was this. Jesus spoke with him on that road to Damascus, telling him, Why are you persecuting me? When in fact, he was persecuting the church. And so it was, he said, It's hard for you, Paul, to kick against the pricks. Hard for us, too, to resist the truth. And just like Gamaliel himself had said, we are the foolish ones if we fight against God. Tonight, as you examine and analyze yourself, where do we stand?
Are you on the Lord's side or are you on the enemy's side? Saul had been on the enemy's side, but all of that was about to change because he was convicted of the one whom he had been persecuted. And maybe tonight someone in this audience has also become convicted of the one for whom you were not before living. If we could help you in your obedience to the gospel, we would love to do that. Believe in Jesus with all of your heart, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. If you are a wayward child of God though, one who has brought reproach on the church, one who has so lived in such a way that really the way is not evident in your life, you know that isn't right and it's not good and the Lord's not happy with that. But you could in fact have that forgiven wiped away, never more to be remembered by Him. All you must do is repent of it, make confession of it, invite prayers to God, and tonight how sweet it would be if a wayward child of God could be put back in his or her rightful place of faithfulness. We would love to assist you. We would only ask you to let us know how we can. And tonight, if it would be anyone in the audience in that condition, we invite you to come at the moment, right now, while together we stand and while we sing.